morning. This is our third message in this series called Messengers from the book of 1 Peter, near the end of your New Testament. If you have a copy of the Bible in your hand or on your lap or in your phone, you can open up to 1 Peter, right near the end of the Old Testament, just a Bible, I should say, a little bit shy of the book of Revelation. 1 Peter will be in chapter 2. Now, this book, 1 Peter, sort of the, I would say, the outline or the the thesis of the whole book is, is it, that Peter is saying to his congregation, and I think is, is, is every bit as true today, is, is how do you live out your faith in a world that is increasingly um, opposed to the ways of God? Now, there was lots of reasons for it in the first century um, that are different from ours. Some of them are different, but it certainly is true for us. But here's the thing. As we think about it, you have this attitude or you can adopt an attitude as the world, whether it's the school system or politics or, you know, everyday life, how, how we make our way in the world, we can have a different response to a world that seems to be opposed to the ways of God. And one of those ways, which, you know, we all have to think about as, as individuals, as parents, as people, as professionals, is, you know, sort of a, you know... Um, uh, uh, just avoid it mentality, sort of a, you know, in, you know, let's just do everything we can to limit our interaction with the world because the world in many ways um, is opposed to the ways of God. It makes it difficult for us even to live out our faith. But what the Bible says, uh, this book in particular, says, you know, God is still in love with the people of the world. And God still has for us, right, as his church, um, some important things to do. And that's what the, today's message is about. It's titled, A Special Mission. So we have a copy of the Bible. Let's read these verses. A Special Mission. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 12. Where we left off last week. As you come to him... The living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. First thing I want to say about this passage, very um, um, rich passage in, uh, as Peter talks about 
the Old Testament in particular, is the church is the dwelling place of God. Right? That's what he's saying. The church is the dwelling place of God. Now, in this passage, these handful of verses that we just read, there are six Old Testament passages directly uh, quoted. You see them in these verses, you know, four, five, six, seven, and either six direct references and many other images from other passages that are all from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament people of God. And keep in mind that the Bible for the early Christians was the Old Testament. The New Testament was being written. And he takes six very rich passages... And he, um, that the, and he applies them to the New Testament church that the resurrection of Jesus, which had just happened, right, more or less, had made possible. This one event had de- taken God's purposes, right, going from the, the book of Genesis all the way through the patriarchs, all the way through the creation of the monarchy, all the way through the, the time of exile. This one event, the resurrection of Jesus, takes God's purposes that have been going on patiently and carefully for thousands of years and elevates them to a whole new level. It's hard for us to appreciate, but I hope you will for a minute, what it would be like to be a first-generation Christian that Peter is writing to. Think about this for a minute. Many of them, as you might know, not all of them, but many of the early church, they were Jewish people, right? Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. Out of the Jewish, you know, out of in Jerusalem, Peter preaches. All the church is Jewish. Out of the Jewish faith comes the Messiah, and the Christian church is born. But overnight, this is what happens. The elaborate worship system of Israel, right? that had been going on for a thousand years, right? The temple and the priesthood and the protocol and the sacrifices and the holy of holies and the festival days, all of this very patient protocol, it comes to an end like flipping off a light switch. The ethnic groups, there was only one ethnic group, right? Unless you were a proselyte, it was the Jewish people. They were the chosen people. But here it says, once you were not a people... Now you are a people. Overnight, the gospel that was connected to one group of people was for every kind of people, every race, every culture, every background happened overnight. There is no more, right, sacred building anymore, right? There is no more clergy class the, 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 called the Levites in the Old Testament. Listen, there's no more sacrificial system. Think about it if you were Jewish, It's like somebody just, you know, I don't know what the equivalent would be because if somebody, you know, blew up this whole campus or just, you know, a meteor destroyed it on a Monday, we just, you know, we'd go meet in a a rented school or something, right? But in this case, the whole system, the way people understood what it meant to have a relationship with God came to an end. And this is why if you, if you think about the early church, those of you who might read about the early church, there, one of the reasons there was so much persecution, not only by Jewish people, but even by non-Jews, right? The, the Roman Empire, the people and the, the general population, that they were very skeptical of this thing called the Christian faith was because the Christian faith didn't make any sense to them. There was no apparent organization to the Christian faith, right? There was no organization, no temple. There was no temple. There was no, um, there was no sacred building. As I said, even pagans, if you read the book of Acts, I'm talking about pagan religion. Paul intersects it, right? When there was, you know, um, these pagan temples, they had temples, they had priests, 
they had sacrifices. Remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I think 7 and 8, he says, listen, don't eat the meat sacrificed to pagan temples. Even the pagans had a system that at least made some sense. But all of these systems, whether they, even the Jewish system to a sense, was built on one big idea. Slow down and think about this for a minute. It's the idea of appeasement, right? All of religion was based on, in other words, satisfying demands. The reason people came, whether it was to the pagan temple, even to the sense to the Jewish temple with their turtle dove, with their ram, with their lamb, was because they had sinned against God. They had offended God, and God needed to be appeased. And people's understanding of what it meant to be religious, to have a relationship with God, was that in a sense, God is holy, you and I are not holy, and you have got to do something to satisfy, to appease the gods, right? This is what all religion was built on. But here's what's so amazing that took place. And in this sense, I would say to you, there is no other religion all of all, any, all religions of the world, are, they're, they're similar in this sense, right? It's all about appeasement, right? Christianity is the only one that's different in this sense, right? Jesus Christ, right? He's the heart. He is the temple. My body is a temple. He is the priest. He says this. He's our high priest. He is the clergy class itself. It's Jesus, right? There is no mediator between God and man, just the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ lived the life that all of us should have lived. He's the perfect human, right? He lived the life that all of us should live. He was without sin. And Jesus Christ died the death that we all deserve because we are sinners, right? So in Jesus Christ, in this one person, in his life, the Son of God, all of the demands that God had that I live a perfect life, that you live a perfect life, were met in the person of Jesus Christ, right? There's why the whole sacrificial system went away. It wasn't necessary anymore because God's demands for righteousness, God's demands that sin be atoned for were all satisfied in Jesus, which is why he says in verse 7, now to you who believe, right? You had to believe this message. This stone, which becomes a metaphor for Jesus, this stone is precious, right? It's precious. Is Jesus Christ precious to you? He's precious to you for one reason, because he lived the life that you could not live. I strive to live it, but he lives the life I could not live. And he died on the cross, although he was without sin, so that he could satisfy the demands of my sin. He paid the penalty of my sin. And when you get a hold of that, Peter's saying, this stone is precious. And when you think about it, we can appreciate um, why the Jews, if you read the New Testament in particular, many of the people, as you go through the, you know, the chronicle of the New Testament, that opposed, it seems ironic at first because Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, that opposed the Christian church were Jews, all over the place in the New Testament, but you can appreciate, or I hope you can appreciate a little bit, why that's the case. Think about this. For 1,000 years, with maybe 70 years exception, right, when the temple was burned down, um, but for 1,000 years, think of how long that is, from the time that Solomon built his temple until Jesus walked the earth. For 1,000 years, 
the people of God understood what it meant to worship God. There wasn't like churches all over the world. There was one temple, right? It was in Jerusalem. And people would come to the temple three times a year, even if you lived in the far corners of the Roman Empire, right? The temple was very, very important. And it was the place where in a, they, they knew God didn't fit into the temple. Even Solomon knew that. God, how could I build a house for you? You're, you're, you're infinite. But they understood the temple was where God's presence was. And people came to the temple. People even prayed. Remember the story of Daniel? Daniel, where he was way off in Babylon, Daniel would pray three times a day towards Jerusalem, right? The temple represented the presence of God. But what this passage is saying, it's why I think he uses this metaphor of a stone. There's three passages. They're all quoted here. When he says, listen, God says, I'm going to bring forth a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. It's Jesus. It's the Messiah. But why does he use this metaphor of a stone? Now, the, some of you have been to Israel. I've been there a couple times. And it's hard for us to appreciate because when you hear the word stone, you think of, um, you know, you think of something you hold in your hand. But if you, there's a passage in the New Testament where Jesus is walking with his disciples by Herod's temple. It's in the book of Matthew. And his disciples say, Lord, look at these stones. Look at how amazing they are when they're talking and they're walking by the temple. And the stones in the temple, the foundation stones, one of them is still there from Herod's temple. We call it the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. This stone is the size of this entire building. It's huge. Okay, how they ever, it was like the pyramids, how they ever built these things, there's a whole movie on it when you go to Israel. These stones were huge, right? They represented the temple. And what Peter is saying is, listen, the place where the, for, for a thousand years the people of God have come to meet, that has now become, on the resurrection, a living stone, right? The place where people come to worship is not a building, even one as magnificent as the temple. Within years of Peter writing this book, the temple was destroyed and has never been rebuilt because he said, listen, there is a living stone and those who choose to believe, verse 7, you are like a living stones, verse 5, being built into a spiritual house, that's the new place of worship, that all of us come. And let me say something that's very important about this. He's talking about worship. He's talking about the church, the one that you and I are here today a part of. But it's so important to understand, when he's talking here about the temple, that's the idea of living stones, the place of worship. He's not talking, and almost in this place and almost almost every other place, when he talks about the temple, he's not talking about your individual body. There are places in the New Testament that says your body is the temple of the God, of, of the living God, and his spirit is within us. And I affirm that. But in most cases, in here, 1 Corinthians 3:16, I didn't print it. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? You yourselves, the collective, and that God's spirit dwells within your midst, midst, right? When he's talking about the people of God, when he's talking about living stones, he's talking about people who live in community. And what he's saying is what used to happen in the temple where people would go with the expectation of two primary things, where they would have an experience the atonement of sin and they would experience the power of God. These two things happen in the church, in community. That's what he's saying. It's profound what Peter is saying here. Well, I was in um, my, uh, my community group this past week, and we were talking about the idea of the church, and the question came up. 
And the question that just kind of went around the room that we were talking about was um, part of the, the, the study we're doing was, where do you most feel, in what, with, in what context, with what people do you most feel yourself, Right? Where do you feel most comfortable? Where do you mo- think about it? You know, is it work? Is it at school? Is it with my family? Is it with my, 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 my old drinking buddies? Whatever the case may be, right? Who do you most feel yourself with? That's what we were talking about. And one uh, woman in my small group, she comes from a big family, and she said, well, first of all, everybody pretty much said family, which makes sense, right? In a sense, Maybe some of us don't. I don't know. But it's the place where you, 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 you can most let your hair down, where I would say where you most feel that you are not judged, right? Because that's where, that's where we don't, that's where we become less of ourselves at work, at school, wherever. When we feel like we're going to be judged, we hold back. And the idea is, we're, we're, she said, we're, we're, I think an, almost to a person, most people felt most themselves in their family. But she said... In my family, however, she comes from a big family, she said, half of them are Christians and half of them aren't. And she said, as I think about it, I feel more at home with those who are Christians in my family than those who aren't. And in a sense, sitting around the small group with a bunch of people who had no relationship, I feel more at home here, right? You know what Jesus said? It's a fascinating passage of Scripture. One time, Jesus, when his ministry was really going strong, and he's preaching and, and healing and all kinds, it's amazing. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a rock star in a manner of speaking. I mean, people are coming to him, all kinds of people. Even the religious leaders are coming. They're all around him. And he's at this house, and he's just, it's just, he's just in this picture, just people are overflowing. And someone comes to him, kind of yells and says, Jesus, your family, your mother, and your brothers, they're standing outside. They couldn't even get in his own family, and he's basically saying, Jesus, do you want us to find a place for your, your mother and your brothers to come? And Jesus said, he looked down at the people sitting on the ground, and said, listen, these are my mother, these are my brother, these are my sisters. That's a powerful statement. I don't think Jesus was throwing his, saying he didn't love his family, he's saying, listen, the people where I really experience the power of God, the people who are a part of my redemption process, they're right here. That's what he's talking about. The church is the place, the new place, where the dwelling of God takes place. It's the dwelling place of God. Two things happen, or they should happen. One is redemption, right? That is my, my, my life, the gospel does a greater work in my life in the context of the church, even in a worship service like this one. And the second thing is it's where the power of God shows up. Two things precede the New Testament church. He's making reference to it here in living stones. He's trying to take their imagination, saying, listen, what happened in the temple? What happened in the tent, which was the tabernacle, and eventually in the very elaborate building called the temple, it now is supposed to happen here in places like this. And most importantly, he's talking about the power of God showing up. Think about Moses going into the tent and Moses would go into the tent and said, all of a sudden, not every day, the cloud would descend. The power in the entire nation of Israel would stand to its feet and they would watch and Moses would come out because God met him there, right? The same thing would happen periodically in the temple, you know? And I say to myself, ask this question. If that happened in the tent and it happened in the, in the tabernacle, and I say, I'm saying it's here, I say to myself, you might be saying to yourself, 
why doesn't it happen more here, right? If this is what the church is now, it's the dwelling place of God, corporate worship. Why, and, I, you know, if I knew the answer to that question, you know, I would, I, would, I would give my whole life to it because I don't know the answer. And sometimes I think, well, you know what? I need to, I need to preach longer. <laughs> and I get all my best friends going, oh, that's not the way to go, okay? We need to turn the music up. Oh, I don't think that's the way. Turn it down, you know? Maybe we need to pray more. Okay, I don't know the answer to that. Why does not the power of God show up more? But let me tell you this. Let me say this and move on. There's another parable of Jesus. It's a very simple parable. And Jesus says, two guys go to a temple. And he says, one guy comes in. He's a Pharisee. He happens to be a religious leader. And he says, you know, he says, he's reading his thoughts. It's a parable. He says, you know, I, uh, I tithe, I, I, I serve, um, you know, I cross my T's, I dot my I's. Uh, you know, I do a good job. What do you got for me today? It's a paraphrase. Comes to church. He says, another guy comes. And the second guy says, he has such a, he's so burdened by his own um, sin, he cannot even lift up his face. He's sitting in the church temple. And he says, he just beats his chest and he says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, listen, the guy who got something out of church that day it wasn't guy number one, it was guy number two, which says at least this much to me. Whether or not the power of God shows up in corporate worship, whether or not the power of God shows up, for that matter, in your small group, has a lot to do with where your heart is when you come in, okay? The church is the dwelling place of God. You know, I, this is one thing about a pastor because you always hear from people. I could be in the same sermon, this sermon, and someone, maybe a friend, me, boy, you, what were you thinking? Did you not get any sleep last night? That was a, that was, that was, that was really flat. I mean, I think you said Jesus had sin in his life. I mean, you, you, you said three wrong things. And then someone else would come and say, that was the most amazing hour that I've had in the longest time. God did something amazing in my life. Now, why is that? Right? It all depends on where your heart is when you come in. Right? The church is the, the dwelling place of God. First thing he wants to say in this passage is what the church is. Second thing is what the church does. The church exists to make God known. Right? Now there are a number of terms here. In just one verse, verse 9, there are four terms that are so pregnant with meaning. If I had hours, I would go through this with you. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now, they may not mean a lot to us, but it's almost like poetry. Or you're trying to make a point, and you're making a point, you're just saying, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to... Up, pull up my truck, and I'm going to unload these, these, these very powerful words to try to make a point, right? I'm just going to cascade one after another. And all four of these have a very significant meaning. All of them, really, except for one, come from one verse in the Old Testament. And it's when Moses has the children of Israel, and, they're going, and he's, they left Egypt, and they're finally at Sinai, right? And they're about to receive the covenant from God, the, the great, you know, ten, t testaments. The, 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 you know, God, Moses meets God at the mountain. He's going to come down and say, listen, here's what God has for you. But here's, here's, here's something very important to keep in mind. 
It's in this moment. It's Exodus 19, 5 and 6 if you want to look at it. There's where this, these words that you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, you are a special possession or God's treasured possession. It comes from that verse and it comes from this moment. But it is here on the edge of Sinai, on the edge of getting the covenant, it's here that God's people are called the chosen people, right? When we, we use this word, and Peter's using it here, you are a chosen people. It's not talking about who you are, right? It's talking about what you're called to do. You're chosen for a purpose. Listen, the exodus, which happened much a little earlier, right? Days, months earlier before they got here to, to, to the mountain, the Exodus represented God's love, right? Exodus, the, the first verse of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who delivered you out of Egypt, right? There's deliverance, there's love. To be called the chosen of people of God is about purpose. That's what he's talking about. He's given you a purpose, saying, listen, the purpose that was given to the nation of Israel, that they would be a royal priesthood, that they would be a holy nation, that they would, have, they would be God's special possession, this purpose has been given to every one of you, the church. That's what it's been. What are priests, by the way? It's, he's, it's, it's a, he's using this as a, you, you as a people are a priesthood. Now, what priests did in the Old Covenant, they, they, were, they were a very special class, an elite class, right? Even just a part of the Levites were priests. This is what they did, in essence, the priests of the Old Covenant. They helped put people in touch with the power of God and with the promised forgiveness, right? Whatever my sin was, whether it was a white lie or murder or anything in between, the only way I could have my sin forgiven, have my sin atoned for, was if a priest helped me through the Old Testament experience God. He was the mediator between me and God. He's saying, listen, that's what you are. That's what I am. Forget the, cla forget the clergy. There is no clergy class. You don't need no holy temple because there's only one sacrifice. It's Jesus. He is in your heart. And now you and me, we are called in everyday ways simply to help other people. We are priests be in contact with the love of God, be in contact with God's forgiveness. That's what we're called to do. That's what he's saying. You are a holy priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special treasured possession. Two things. Look what he says in this verse, right? You are God's chosen people. You're a holy nation. All these big terms that talk about purpose. Now watch this. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into one. That's it. That's the purpose of every one of our lives. That we may declare the purposes of God, praises of God, excuse me, who called you out of darkness. Two, two ways the Bible talks about praising God. Two very, they're, they're, the whole Bible is full of this, the Old Testament in particular, the book of Psalms. How do we praise God? Well, two ways. We praise God by declaring who he is, right? He's the Lord Almighty. We praise God by acknowledging his power, acknowledging his greatness, acknowledging his otherness, acknowledging that who he is. He is the Lord Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We acknowledge him for who he is. But second, we acknowledge him for what he has done, particularly what he has done um, in our lives. That's what he's saying. Your purpose, my purpose, 
is to declare to others what God has done, namely calling you out of darkness into your wonderful light. That's it. What has God done in your life? I was in um, the, uh, um, my gym this week, and this guy came up to me who I don't even know that well, um, young guy who, but I've casually talked to him, and, and when I see him normally, he'll, you know, we, we just talk about life, you know, he, what do you, you know, we talk a little bit about his job, so he knows that I'm a pastor, talk a little bit about my job, but we've never had, I would say, serious conversation, but he comes to me the other day, not in the locker room, by the way, uh, <laughs> fully clothed, but he comes to me the other day, and he said, listen, he said, um, we just started talking, and he said, he, it was so funny, he says, you know, you know uh, 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 what, what time are your services? And I said, you know, mention the time of the services. And he said, um, uh, now what do you do? It was so funny. He goes, no, what, what do you do the rest of the week? I have a thing. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, he, you know, uh, you know uh, nothing, golf, you know, I don't know. <laughs> so we just started talking about it. And I wasn't really sure what he was getting at. But then eventually he said, well, do you meet with people? And I said, oh, yeah, I do. You know, sure, I meet with people. And, and I said, why? Do you want to get together? Like, what's this all about, Right. And, and, and he said, uh, well, you know, so interesting. He said, you know, uh, he, he just went, this happened in three minutes, this part. He said, you know, I got my act together, I got a good job. He, he gave me his sort of mini resume of how life was good, but basically said, something's missing in my life. And he said, I'd just like to talk to you, right? This is what he's talking about. But here, here, here's what his issue is. What he's looking for is not um, a scripture reference. Okay? He's not looking for, he doesn't have a theological problem in a manner of speaking. What he wants to know from me, right? what people want to know from you is, how is God done something in your life? Rob, this is what I want to know from you. How has God done a work in your life? What has God done in your life? This is what people want to know. And this is the purpose. This is what it means to be a messenger. It's very simple. Your, God, has, your, God has loved you. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You are God's treasured possession. Treasured possession. That's really what the, uh, it says in, in the book of uh, Exodus. And I thought about that. What is my most treasured possession? Right? What are pe- what, when you, if I said this to you and said, write down on a piece of paper the most valuable thing that you have. Now, most people would say, I hope it's probably not going to be your car. It's probably not going to be your, your house. It's probably not going to be your diploma. It's probably going to be people or a person in your life. Maybe your spouse, maybe your kid, maybe your parents, maybe a very... It's probably going to be people. In fact, one, one, of the, one of the beautiful experiences I have as a pastor is to talk to many people who have, you know, widows, uh, men and women who've lost their spouses, right? In this room, in this church. And it's amazing. I've talked to people who've, I'm looking at Anita, uh, but uh, many others in this church, who have lost their spouse. Sometimes they lost them five or 15 years ago, and they talk about them, right, Rose? They talk about them um, like, you know, they died yesterday. I mean, tears, it takes nothing to bring someone to tears, and there's no question in my mind that there is no car, no vacation, no, you know, seven-figure lottery ticket. There's nothing that comes within a million miles. I don't have to say, what's the most important thing in your life? It's written all over their face, okay? What 
Peter is saying here is, this is how God feels about you, right? That's amazing. You are his treasured possession. And this leads to my last point, which is what Peter's getting to here, right? What's the motivation? How am I really going to be motivated to make God known? You've got to realize that grace changes everything. That's how he changes this passage, right? Or it should. Is Jesus precious to you? Now to you who believe, this stone, it's a metaphor for Jesus, the real temple, is precious. But in other words, is he that precious? Do you have a true appreciation to say, he lived the life that I was supposed to live, that God's called me to live. He died paying the penalty for my sin. He is precious to me. I am, you are his special and treasured possession. And until that melts your heart, right? Fills you with wonder, right? You may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light, right? We'll never really uh, change this community. But if it does, if that begins to melt your heart, watch out. And look at this verse. Last verse, I'll just end with this thought. Verse 10. It's not in quotes, but it should be. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. That's a quote, another quote in this you know, uh, a cascade of quotes from the book of Hosea. Now, don't raise your hand if you've never read the book of Hosea, but some of you maybe haven't. But the book of Hosea, like a lot of the prophets, is, is a living parable. And God comes to the, to, to the prophet Hosea and he says, listen, in a time when the people of God were, had re, who, had, who had rejected the covenant, they were living like, like uh, be, they were living worse lives than the pagans around them in a manner of speaking. And God says, I'm going to have to let them go. And he says, Hosea, I want you to marry this woman. Her name is Gomer. In the, in, in, and, um, and I want you to know ahead of time she's going to be unfaithful to you. And not only is she unfaithful to him, she ends up having children with other men while she's his wife. And one of those children, he even names Loami, which in Hebrew means not mine. Right? It's not mine. But after she's, you know, uh, off doing her thing, she eventually is sold. She must have made her, one of her uh, uh, lovers unhappy. And she ends up being sold on the slave market, right? Um, and God says to Hosea, go buy her back. Take her back. And he said, this is, a, this is, a, this is a, an analogy for my people because once you were not a people... You turned your back on me, and I let you go. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, they went into exile, but now you have received mercy. And listen, in Jesus Christ, the promise of Hosea came to reality. To a people that didn't deserve it, to a people that had turned their back on God, to people of every race, every background who said, no, thank you, I'm going to go my way. And God says, I love you anyway. And those who were not called my people will be called my people, right? This is what Peter is saying. Listen, if we really want to see, I, I heard this one pastor who I really respect. He was talking about churches. 
and growing churches. And he said, you know, churches um, often have become the history of the church. They become an institution, right? I mean, you know this. And the reason the glory of God does not show up anymore sometimes in my small group, in our service day. You know, I've been coming a long time. I've never had that second feeling, Rob. I'm the first guy who says, boy, that was boring. And when's that going to be over? And, 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 I, and I, you know, I don't know if I'm coming back next week. I'm not the guy or the gal that says, wow, you changed my life. Boy, you spoke to me. That was the most amazing thing I ever heard. I don't feel that as much. And he said, listen, the church becomes an institution. And it's happened throughout the history of time. There are churches Okay? I went to one this week in this city for a funeral of a friend, a close friend. In this church, um, at one day, was a, was, was a beautiful, gorgeous, overflowing church. And today, it's, they can barely pay the light bill. Okay? Right? And you know there's churches like this all over the place. Because he said, this is what's true about institutions. Institutions are primarily focused on um, they're members, right? Just like it's a, like it's a club. It's, it's like, a, like a golf club. They're focused on their members. That's what an institution is. But movements, which is what the early church was in the book of Acts, movements are focused on the people who aren't here. And that's what Peter's saying. Listen, God blew up, or really was part of his plan, he, but he brought to an end the, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, system of worship centered around the temple and he blew it all up and he said Jesus Christ he lived the life that you could never live he died the death that you could never satisfy and he's come into your life and he wants to do something amazing through you he wants to do but what's really going to motivate your heart what's really going to motivate my heart what's going to motivate us is God's grace right you who are not a people are a people well, you who did not have mercy, you now have mercy. And if that gets a hold of your heart, if that gets a hold of my heart, listen, there will be people like this guy who will be coming to you and coming to me and saying, tell me more about what's going on in your life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray.